Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear from leading thinkers from our university and around the world. If you would like to hear more from our experts, why not attend Raising the Bar 2017, which will see some of our academics give 20 talks in 10 bars across Sydney, all on one night, Wednesday the 25th of October. To register for your free ticket, head to raisingthebarsydney.com.au. Enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome everyone. Um, First, I want to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It's upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. As we share our knowledge, learning and research within this university, May we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. So my name is Bridget Rooney and I'm from the Department of English here at the University of Sydney and I'll be chairing the first part of this evening's much anticipated Australian Literature doubleheader event. First up we have Omar Musa. Um, presenting an ASAL Patrons Lecture. And this will be followed by refreshments for about a half an hour. Then at 6.30, we'll reconvene for Beth Yap, who's going to be talking on Barbara Hanrahan's wonderful novel, The Scent of Eucalyptus, for our Reading Australian Literature series. Now, as President of the Association for the Study of Australian Literature, I need to say a few brief words about the Patrons Lectures. Every year, AZEL invites some of our distinguished writers to give patrons lectures free to the public in regional or city locations around the nation. AZEL patrons lectures are generously funded by the Copyright Agency. Um, the banners are behind me for AZEL and Copyright Agency. They're designed to kindle public interest in Australian writing, as well as encourage conversation between writers and readers. Um, Omar's visit to Sydney for this lecture tonight has also been supported by the Chair of Australian Literature, Professor Robert Dixon, who's here with us tonight, and by the Sydney Ideas team. And I'd like especially to thank Michelle de Kretzer, Meredith Hall and Beth Yarp for agreeing to bring our two events uh, together for this fantastic evening. Now uh, to Omar Musa. Omar is a Malaysian-Australian writer hailing from the New South Wales town of Queanbeyan. So, in fact, he flew uh, from Perth yesterday to be here. He's right in the midst of touring around Australia with a crew of fellow hip-hop artists. We were especially delighted when Omar accepted this invitation to give a patron's lecture tonight. Because we have students here uh, studying, here at Sydney studying his arresting, innovative and widely praised 2014 novel, Here Come the Dogs, which took out the Sydney Morning Herald Best Young Novelist of the Year Award and was impressively uh, long-listed for the Miles Franklin Literary Award. Now, as I'm sure many of you know, Omar is a slam poet winner of the 2008 Australian Poetry Slam and the 2009 Indian Ocean Poetry Slam, as well as hip-hop performer and novelist. He is prolific and he is versatile, having produced three, and maybe we're up to number four, hip-hop album, 
albums and three books of poetry, The Clocks, Parang, and most recently, Mille Fiori, which has been taken up by Penguin Books. Across these works, Omar meditates on his Malaysian and Australian cultural contexts, exploring dreams, love, migration, diaspora, identity, and belonging. Tessa Lunny, who reviewed Here Come the Dogs in uh, Southerly magazine, sums up the convergences in his writing beautifully when she says that his characters speak with a lyrical beat and a narrative track that is as complex as their hidden emotional landscape. So tonight, Omar is offering his reflections on writing and his reading from his work. And he's going to depart from what I had expected the script to be, which would be to cordon off questions at the end. And I think he's going to be folding in some questions into the talk, so be ready to be drawn in to a conversation. Over to you, Omar. Thank you so much for having me here this afternoon. Uh, I'd also like to pay my respects to the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation on whose land we stand, their survival and resilience in front of the greatest odds. Um, it's, it's inspiring and it's something that we must celebrate and we must be aware of constantly when we are on this beautiful land. Uh, I'm not going to do a, a lecture per se. I was asked to perform a little bit and then I might speak a bit and reflect about my work and then I'll open it up to questions, queries, and theories. And uh, yeah, so I'm gonna start with a poem called The Boys. Oi, the boys are turning mad. The boys are turning circles in the sky. The boys are swooping down with bass heavy hearts and sharp talons, plucking the eyes of cows and dismembering doves. The boys are turning ferocious. They are growing up with garlands of nuts, bolts and knuckle bones around their necks. Pistons plunge in their forearms and jaws. Petrol churns in the chambers of their chests. They trade dynamite for candles and whip words into the cake mix. Like bitch, slut, whore, lowey, ganger, mutt. They confront each other with the tenderness of wild things and the brutality of the civilized. The boys are turning on each other. The boys are turning on each other. And you see what I did there? Just one little word, eh? It makes a lot of difference. They are getting hard at the thought of carnage, drawing lines on the bodies of women like rich man on map, like butcher on diagram of beast he will feed to the cleaver. The boys are turning on the fulcrum of history, enraged at the thought that things might change from the way they have always been. I know this because I have dreamed their raptor dreams. The boys are turning away. They are turning into fathers and bus drivers and poets, uncles and bosses and boyfriends in servos and courtrooms, in boardrooms and pubs. The boys are turning into men. Thank you. Hey. Some dark shit. Yeah, so... um. <laughs> Uh, I grew up in a town called Queanbeyan, New South Wales, just outside of Canberra, you know, um, and I'm very proud, a proud representative of my hometown, and I've often tried to get to the heart 
uh, of what it, what it meant to grow up there, you know, because I always had this weird idea that Queen Bianne was actually a microcosm uh, for the rest of Australia. You know, I mean, it's a natural thing for humans to do, isn't it, to place themselves at the centre of all, of all experience. So I'm just going to follow that for a little while, I'll just do a few more poems. Um, this one originally didn't have a name, it's sort of like a Luxa-infused pub rant. Uh, and it goes like this. I represent more than the sum of my parts. I was just trying to give you all some of my heart through my art, la musica, la poesia. Try to be a warrior like Queen Bodicea. I saw no Maria, no saviour, just a chain whip slave ship overseer. And they had no idea how I got the re-up, swept up, tears leapt up over fear. I had a mum who told me question authority and a dad whose only quest was authority. That has left me with an inner dichotomy, inner cyclone, inner trance, try stopping me. I was the boy in the corner, so dizzy. It's an old school reference now, old grime reference. Dizzy Rascal's first album, The Boy in the Corner. All right, yeah. Uh, I was the boy in the corner, so dizzy. I used to sit with my boys and roll ciggies. I used my real accent, no Iggy. Puffin 98, oh, no biggie. Let the show begin, thoughts I'm provoking them, see the storm rolling in, strolling on linoleum like, like what the fuck is up? I like my cup filled up and my women Amazonian. It's your body, it's your right to choose, huh? What to do with your fallopian tubes or your ovaries over these chauvinist dudes controlling attitudes, telling you what to do, huh? That's like a Kanye, huh? You know that ad-lib that he does? It's like the worst ad-lib in the history of hip-hop. See, they're Napoleon's little man shit. I'm a hundred fucking kilogram bricks of the raw, uncut, uppercut to the gut. Better duck when I buck, run amuck. What is up? See, inequality's growing. All I got going is my flowing, my war poems. Wilfred Owen, knowing that they're mowing us down. Sometimes I want out, want to throw in the towel, undoubtedly. But I'm an abacus. People count on me, so I handle it. You know I'm bound to be bouncing these beats while ASIO's hounding me, trying to get me shot up on the boundary. I see my peers all trying to stunt. They want a car with a lady looking fly on the front. Me, me, I try every month to send a bundle to my gran in the jungle lands at least once. You see, that's baller to me. I'm trying to keep my fan poverty free, sending some dollars to eat. I'm not totally there yet. The same income as when I worked at the back of Kingsley's Chicken in a hairnet. It's a Canberra institution, delicious fried chicken. Uh, completely unethical, I think. <laughs> See, I'm the best. I don't want to get, bit, get done for defamation, though, so I don't put that out there. See, I'm the best that you never heard of yet. I'm screaming death to the Murdoch press. I've read the turd op eds. I'm getting faded off the Schmernoff red. I hit the streets when I swerve off set. Everywhere I'm seeing violence, violence, everywhere violence. It started with invasion and pacts of silence. Terrorist tyrants, the theatre of war, the guns roar. We could still hear the encores. Cause Governor Macquarie told soldiers to march up. Kill black fellas, strike fear in their hearts but Hang them from the trees so everyone could see. That's the same dude we named a bank and a uni after. Shame. Cause our country has a rotten core, forgotten wars in the bottom drawer. The myth makers are dictators and piss takers. They got a lot of gall when they choose their memorials and who we choose to honor more. The people who were fighting for their lands back from the land grabs, rapes and the ransacks. Now nah, let's forget about that and lay another wreath for the Anzacs. 
who were used as a fodder for the empire, eaten up by the gunfire. Don't get me twisted, no disrespect for their sweat perspired or the bloodshed, but we've got to reach higher. Be nuanced, shift the lens, be brave and consider again. Stop putting words into the mouths of dead men for your modern agendas. For the sake of myth, people change what it is they remember. What they remember. The diggers didn't fight for the fags to get married or hijabs to be worn. They fought for the flag that we carry. They fought for our freedom, our right to be equal and even. Mm, well, yes and no. Some people took the chance just to travel the globe. A sense of camaraderie and hanging with their bros. Travelling and battling an unknown foe. They fought for a nation that divided up races and preached segregation. A place where it was cool to beat your wife. So don't make up their morals in hindsight. Being so selective is cheap, see. We're hiding from the history that makes us uneasy. At least question while we venerate it. We poured out 350 million bucks to commemorate it. And despite all the facts, Brendan Nelson won't commemorate the frontier wars that really made us. Look, it wasn't just Bush, Mr. Abbott. A place for the crook, Captain Cook, to inhabit. Oh, take a look in your books, Mr. Abbott. 500 languages kept the lands managed. And I'm not indigenous, but I try to understand that they not just fought, but fight for their land right now when they won't die down and the fire's burning hot enough to burn John Howard's eyebrows, yes. <laughs> the people tell me love it or leave it. Fuck that. How about love, hate it and stay? I'll carry the flame. They try to disqualify everything that I say because I'm a big brown brother with an Arabic name. They call me ungrateful and unpatriotic. Shit. That attitude is straight idiotic. If loving your country means wanting change for the better, that means criticizing the ugly. Side of society ASAP. We got a 17.5% gender pay gap. Played out narratives of whores and Madonnas. Cat calls to the officers of politics. Shit. Two women a week die from domestic violence. If that is not a crisis, tell me what is a crisis? Nah, instead we obsess over ISIS or the Ebola virus or fucking Miley Cyrus. Man, open your eyelids. I told you it was a pub rant. Still, it's not my aim to claim that I've never said bitch in vain to maim or disrespected women. I'm a product of the system, but we've got to untrain our brains to make a difference. Because our attitudes, they exist in our slang when we say grow some balls or bro, be a man or she's a slut or don't be a pussy brother. Cookie cutter thoughts reflect where we stand. You see, I'm channeling love, but I'm channeling anger. And I know the echo chamber is always the danger. Preaching to the choir, a church of the converted. But should I keep my eyes averted while justice is perverted? See, I always worry about that, you know, in a situation like this, I'm kind of talking to you, everyone's nodding their heads in unison, maybe we share the same lefty progressive politics and we go up to Newtown and have a beer afterwards and we all agree with each other and no sort of resolution is achieved, you know what I mean? But at the same time, what the hell are our choices? It feels right now all we have is our voices. And I'm trying not to sink like Venice. If I said it, I meant it. I try to live by the tenets, make change, make love, make music with a message. Get the picture like Cole Bennett's. Great photographer from Canberra. All right. 
As long as, long as there are menaces and now ruse, I won't bow to the apathy like them other clowns do. Our government has blood on its hands, three billion bucks in its budget and plans to keep the hell holes open. That's more than the yearly budget of the UNHCR globally. See, this is stat rap. I've got statistics to back my stuff up, you know, because I'm in a university now. And I know that no man is an island, but even continents will sink in a change in climate. They deny all the scientists' findings, gut the CSIRO, but the clock is unwinding, the clock is unwinding. But against all of this, I find solace in my pen, my storytelling, spelling out my origins and ends, the profane and sacred. The best means of understanding ourselves is something so ancient. Since we were animals, Roman on savannah, became hunter-gatherers, standing up, killing mammoths, drilling holes into ivory bones, pentatonic tones as expressions of soul, praying to our deities, painting on a cave wall, pressing in a clay, life, death, love, mating calls, language born, turned into cuneiform, runes on the stone and the pyramid halls. Now we put it down over beats and breaks, acetate, cue, bass, data, base or crates, and I got blood up in my veins again, heart subterranean, bloom like the reddest of geraniums. And I see stars appear, before unseen. Every single one represents a human being, drifting through time like a luminous dream. Maybe one day, someday, we will understand what they mean. Thank you so much. Now here's the part, I'm very comfortable doing that, but now here's the part where you're going to see me um, very uncomfortable, but I think it's good uh, to push yourself into these spaces. So I'm just going to talk a little bit about uh, my background and a bit about my process, and then I'll open it up for questions, uh, if anyone's got those. So, um, as I said, I grew up in Queanbeyan, but I went to school, um, primary school in Forest Primary. It's like very middle class part of Canberra. And when I was eight years old, uh, a kid teased me in the schoolyard and he said that my skin was the same colour as shit and he would be very merciless about this and, and I remember that um, I went, uh, actually he was the Prime Minister's grandson, he went to this uni, but, uh, yeah. but um, yeah, do, you know, figure out how old I am and then you might be able to figure out who it is. Um, so I went home uh, in tears after one occasion and I told my parents that I no longer wanted to be brown. I wished I didn't have brown skin. And uh, my parents, they sat me down and they told me, no, you should always be proud of your skin color and of being Muslim, even if other people tell you that, um, that it's a bad thing. Uh, but I don't think that it sunk in. Uh, several weeks later, and I don't know if these things were connected, but several weeks later, my dad started showing me photos uh, and VHS tapes of this boxer who had once been the heavyweight champion of the world, the, the Louisville Lip. He was a, a handsome and charismatic African-American dude uh, who was sort of like a proto-rapper who spat rhymes and jokes and drove a pink Cadillac around town and drove white America into a frenzy and all the while, you know, standing up for his people and his convictions while dancing on the canvas like no one else before and no one had come. And so, of course, it was, it was Muhammad Ali. And, and I immediately was drawn to this guy and he was, you know, he was Muslim like me and he was proud of it. And he was also a poet and he'd even fought in Malaysia where my dad came from. 
But also he said he was the greatest. He said he was the prettiest. But what really he was saying was that black was beautiful in a world that was teaching people that it wasn't and that you couldn't uh, achieve anything of greatness. If You could not be the greatest if you were black, but he said he was. Anyway, I went to the Queanbeyan Library after that and I like found um, this book of photos of him and so I photocopied them, put them in my school diary and I put them on my wall and, and I knew uh, because of you know, genetics and stuff. I couldn't be a boxer uh, or an athlete, but, uh, but I could have his unfuckwithable attitude towards the world, you know? And um, he taught me at a certain point in my life when I needed it the most, that I could be fearless, that I could be brave, that I could stand up for my convictions and I could stand up for the underdog. So I guess what I'm saying is that he came into my life at a moment when I could have internalized that racism and that hatred, and he was a circuit breaker. And ever since that moment, I realized the importance of circuit breakers. And I think oftentimes, if there are aspiring writers or artists out there, it is not our sole responsibility, but perhaps one of our responsibilities is also to be a circuit breaker. Because there are so many people in this modern Australia, in this world, in fact, uh, who feel demoralized, who feel dehumanized and demonized by power structures that are beyond their control, by historical movements that are beyond their control. And there are so many people who at that point, when, when suddenly a circuit breaker came into my life, maybe they would have internalized that racism and that hatred, or at least there's a danger that they would do that. There are so many people in this world who have been kept silent, yes, kept silent for so long that after a while they believe that staying silent and shutting the hell up is inherent in their nature. And I think this is a very dangerous thing. And I think through writing, we can help shatter this type of mind state. I think we can set an example and help forge new spaces for people like this to take ownership of their stories and of the conversations around them, to add nuance and complexity to narratives around uh, ideas and issues that for so long have been reduced to dangerous stereotypes and myths. If people feel less alone, if they feel that someone who perhaps even looks like them, or maybe not, if they feel like someone is just reflecting their experience, then hopefully they will feel emboldened to tell their stories and in, in their own way. And uh, in the words of the great Australian poet Dorothy Hewitt, to spit pips into the eyes of the myth makers. And I think that's, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to shatter a lot of these myths. It is only in the fraught task of questioning received knowledge, in testing our assumptions of the world and our own prejudices, our loves and loathings, that we can forge new dreamings in a world that is aflame. That's the way I see it. But not only new dreamings, new ways of expressing, expressing these dreamings, new types of language. If you check out the news, you will see that we are being bombed by jingo grenades constantly, or either that, sort of bombed and, and slapped around the head by jingo grenades, or there's this kind of bureaucratic babble that obfuscates the truth and that has this narcotic effect that kind of leaves us incapable of action. And so as writers, um, as thinkers, we, we must form new ways of expressing ourselves to cut through all of that bullshit. And who better to challenge these kind of ossified assumptions about what Australia is and about the world than those who are on the fringes, the so-called outsiders. I was recently having a chat 
this is a mad uh, literary name drop here. I was having a chat to uh, Richard Flanagan, the great Australian author. You know, he won this thing called the Booker Prize. Anyway, he said to me, I was telling about this, about how, like, the, the importance of the outsider in literature and in art. Um, and, and he kind of said it, he said this thing to me that I thought was really deep, but he kind of passed it off as if he just thought of it then. But he said, oh, well, you know, the history of all literature is that of the fringes waging a war upon the centre. And I suppose that's the same as truth speaking to power. And I was like, bloody hell, man, that's deep. You <laughs> should write a book or something. And I, <laughs> and I, I agree with that. Uh, in this kind of post 9-11 world, I see this um, more than ever. I mean, in Australia, the us and the, the them has traditionally been uh, white Australia and Aboriginal Australians. But post 9-11, you see this kind of reconfiguration of the cultural landscape in this country where the, the them that is most sort of spoken about, I think, in the media um, as, as demonic and sort of um, beastly uh, are Muslim Australians. And so I, I felt that growing up, that I was definitely in the them box. But paradoxically, as a writer, it can be valuable, I think, to claim this role. So you can simultaneously seek equity and equality and justice, but at the same time recognise that it's a dangerous thing indeed to be co-opted into the centre, uh, and that by his or her or their very nature, the writer must dwell on the fringes and snipe in from the fringes upon the centre. So it's a fraught activity uh, to be a writer and probably not for the sane. So in my own lifetime, I have seen a sea change uh, in Australian literature, and it's been a very inspiring one. And I hope that it continues, uh, that it's not just on the face of things. It's not just that there are more writers of colour um, that are you know, you know, putting work out, but also the people who um, arrange writers' festivals and, and put on events and are, and are publishing books as well. You know, it can't just be on the surface. However, I think of so many brilliant writers that are coming um, to the surface and, 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 their, and their stories are so important, like Ellen Van Nieven we were talking about before, or Nam Lee, or Melissa Lukashenko, Tony Birch, uh, Maxine Beneba Clark, the list goes on and on. And when I first started writing or I got into the poetry scene, it just seemed so white, you know, that it was like, it was amazing, almost like you would do that brown person, you know, nod, like when you'd see another brown writer in an event. And now, uh, the brownification of Australian writing is well underway, and what a beautiful thing that is. So, uh, I want to get onto the actual practice of writing now. Uh, my definition of good fiction or poetry writing is finding the right word vessel for an emotional or intellectual risk. I think that to create anything worthwhile, it takes trial and error and an almost militant willingness to make mistakes, formally, intellectually, and emotionally. I think that in this country, actually, you could probably say this anywhere in the world, but I feel particularly in Australia, we should, we should be better than this, right? There, there is this kind of mediocrity that runs like a malevolent seam throughout our culture and bleeds even into the literary culture and the creation of this kind of middle-brow, fence-sitting, anodyne art which is one of the great evils of the world. Uh, <laughs> so I think that in writing, um, there has to be this sense, of <laughs> this sense of sailing into the unknown, that at the base of this odyssey, there, there must be a fearlessness. And I keep sort of alluding to this idea of bravery and fearlessness. And that in the creation of this type of work, a sense that it cost the creator something to make it. 
Uh, the great Dominican writer Juno Diaz kind of said it perfectly when he said, maybe it's a good thing to feel lost when you're writing because it means that you are on the path that has not been traversed before, that you are in unmapped territory, and that means that you're creating something original. Uh, while I say that all of this about being lost and, you know, sort of draining yourself and the cost of it, I'm wary that I'm sort of playing into this idea of the, of the tortured artist or the tortured poet, but I do think that it is a necessary part of art making to push yourself into areas of discomfort. Um, I think it's supremely important. I tried to, you know, some of you guys are studying Here Come the Dogs, and I really tried to do that with that novel. I was scratching um, at my own scabs, scratching at the scabs of the country to try and see what was underneath and really question my own prejudices, my fears, my anxieties, especially to do with gender relations, especially to do with what people call toxic masculinity or, uh, you know, so, uh, misogyny. I wanted to, before I could point the finger at somebody else in some polemic type of way, I had to question those things in myself. And it's an ongoing interrogation that goes on in your writing. Um, and I think that the beautiful alchemy of this is that when a reader picks the book up, they are then made to feel uneasy or uncomfortable in a very beautiful way. And then they can question preconceived notions they have about the world. And that is no small thing. Uh, that is no small thing at all. So uh, a lot of what I've been talking about, I guess, has a very political uh, overtone. And I think this is, you know, it's unavoidable. I think all art is political in some way or another. You know, we're social and socialized creatures that we create cultures and then we become products of those cultures. Um, but at the same time, I think that good writing also accesses something that is beneath politics, a kind of incandescent type of truth, and an almost, I'm not a religious man, but an almost religious ecstasy that lies beneath these things that we have created, that we condition each other with. And so that's something that I try to access. Uh, Werner Herzog is one of my favorite filmmakers. He always talks about the ecstasy of truth. And, uh, and you know, I think that filmmakers and painters are very good at accessing this, and I'm trying to do the same thing with my poetry. Um, so I'm wary that we're running out of time. I want to have some questions and stuff. But accessing that type of thing leads me now onto, onto form and process and how I do it. And maybe I can open it up to questions too if you've got a question about process. Um, the attitude I've always taken uh, to writing, and it served me quite well, but it's a constant learning curve as well, and, and again, it feels fraught, is uh, to write in passion and edit in cold blood. I always go on about this. Um, you know, you, you write in this kind of frenzy, almost a trance-like state. Uh, a lot of the old poets in Malay culture would almost have induced themselves in, into that type of trance. So I, there, oftentimes I cannot remember where or when I wrote these poems or these stories or scenes because I want to let them pour out of me in the most spontaneous way possible because I think that's the most truthful way, uh, way of accessing that type of creativity. However, this is where form comes in and, and form becomes so important because it has to be a, a balance of, that, of the visceral and the, and the cerebral. Um, and so that it, it then becomes about finding the right word vessel for this risk, and that can take a long time. And the and the, and the edit is ongoing. You know, uh, something like a novel, 
like Here Come the Dogs was very difficult for me to edit because I'd got used to you know, making little stained glass windows that were poems and then suddenly I had to try and build a cathedral and I didn't know what the hell I was doing. Uh, and so I kind of had to learn on the fly and it took so much trial and error and, um, and so many mistakes. Um, but it felt, like, it felt like it was worth it in the end. Um, but then that, but to contrast that, which is then feels like it's set in stone, you know, now you guys are reading it, it's a set text, I can't do anything to change it. Um, but then when I perform these poems up on stage, they are living, breathing organisms that change, they change constantly. And so the edit goes through, a, it's a whole different editing process with something for the stage because you edit it on the page, you then edit it in rehearsal when you're reading it aloud and awkward phrasing makes itself clear, etc. And then the third edit is ongoing and it's, and it's on the stage where the thing is um, mutable and constantly changing. Uh, do I have any, any questions? Why don't I just open it up now? Hey. Um, I think with, with the music, I didn't always do it this way, but um, I, I respond directly to the music that I've got. I have to ask, I sort of interrogate the beat or the music and say, what, what's it telling me? What type of story is it provoking me to tell? Uh, and so the music must come first and then the words come. Um, but then sometimes, yeah, it's just, it's just trial and error and you'll be banging your head against the wall for sometimes years um, with a poem and then you suddenly realise, oh, it's not a poem at all, it's, a, it's actually a short story or it's a song. And so that's why I try and break, I, I, I like to add all these weapons to my arsenal and experiment with all these different forms because I don't like to be boxed in, I like to break down the perceived barriers between these forms because suddenly... Um, you know, I might be working on a novel and suddenly I need to go into quite a rhythmic section that reflects a rap cadence or I might have to go into something that's more like a movie script. And so if I've experimented with that before, I can, I can drag that into the process as well. Um, so yeah, again, it's, it's just um, trial and error and sometimes you just, you don't know. Uh, so here come the dogs. Originally, I'd had the idea of writing about a bushfire. I knew I want to write about a bushfire ever since I lived through uh, the 2002 or 2003 ones in Canberra. But I thought I was going to do a record, like an a hip-hop album about bushfires. And it just didn't work. It was clunky. It was awkward. It was just all a bit um, mediocre. And, uh, and then I left it to Fallow for years, like 10 years, and kind of forgot about it. And then when I decided I want to write a novel, um, I thought, oh, the, the opening scene of a novel... Uh, well, no, sorry, the, the central... Um, event of this novel could be a bushfire and I went back into my memory banks and started collecting all those things that I'd seen you know way back then so I think giving yourself time to let those thoughts fallow as well as um, is really important but it's painful it is so painful <laughs> hey there oh my god um, <laughs> Well, I mean, look, I don't like to, I don't want to lionise myself too much. I think that, um, you know, often as poets, uh, we are weak and flawed creators, um, you know, and we're not leaders in the same way that a, an activist or somebody on the front line is, or a, um, a teacher or a nurse who's actually there creating kind of social change. Uh, it may be a bit of a cop-out, but I see, as I said before, my role as sort of sniping in from the sidelines and, 
and questioning assumptions about the world, and that's just the small way that I can seem to do it. But you know, would it act, would my poetry actually um, challenge authority uh, in a way that creates real world change? I'm I'm not sure. You know, I think these things all go hand in hand with one another. You know, like a song or a poem is not going to change the world, um, but if it goes hand in hand with some other type of acti activist movement, then it can be a very powerful and inspirational sort of thing. Um, it's just an attitude uh, that I, that I try, a cavalier type of uh, anti-authoritarian attitude that I try to take um, into whatever I do. But of course, you know, we're, we're part of systems that are beyond our control as well. Um, even within the creative industries. You know, I was working in TV recently and I suddenly realised that I didn't have much of a say over what I was creating. You know, I mean, I could create the very small thing, which was the script, but then it was up to somebody else to create it and it became a, another beast entirely. Um, and then, uh, yeah, in terms of real-life activism, sometimes I feel like a complete fraud. But then I just try to keep things local and on a small scale and realise that actually no, I mean in, in my very small limited way I have played a role or tried to in inspiring young people of colour in this country, particularly even though I'm not religious, particularly young Muslim Australian kids uh, who have very different background to me but a lot of people from the western suburbs and stuff have come up to me and said that they started expressing themselves um, and writing poetry because they saw a guy called Omar bin Musa up on stage and, and that felt like a really revolutionary type of, of sea change. So it was a very small thing. I was just doing something uh, that I loved but it had bigger ramifications and, um, and I guess that's just, yeah, that's all we can do. Is that a good answer? I think it was all right. <laughs> I don't know. Who was that? <laughs> um, no, I don't think that's true, but I do think that there is a great danger in sort of um, heavy-handed and polemic poetry that actually doesn't serve um, any function except to be uh, sort of a masturbatory experience for the poet who created it to make themselves look good, and I'm always wary of that. Maybe that's what, you know, because I sometimes think maybe my political poetry is just so earnest and obvious um, that I'm falling into that trap. But that's why earlier I was talking about that kind of um, like an incandescent or ecstatic truth that is, that is but, oh, it's so hard to explain. If I could name it, then I would be way better than I am, I guess. But it's sort of this, this unnameable, um, unnameable, it's an, it's an energy, but I hate that word because it sounds like sort of, yoga speak or something. Um, yeah, it's, it's a universal type of ecstatic truth. That's the best way I can say it. It's an ecstatic truth that lies beneath. And so you can't pinpoint exactly uh, what the poem is about, maybe. But it, it makes you see the world with fresh eyes. And so I think that's the best type of poetry to create. 
Um, but sometimes, you know, you need to say so certain things directly and using the language of the times. But I sort of, again, referring to Muhammad Ali, I like to use a bit of a float like a butterfly, sting like a bee approach. So, you know, keeping the ground shaky beneath people and sometimes very, being very direct and down the line and other times being very, very abstract. So, um, you know, maybe, maybe there was something to what the poet was saying, but I don't completely agree. Um, I think I've been called out many times by strong women in my life um, and people, you know, when I moved to Melbourne, especially like kind of in the writing scene, uh, meeting a lot of uh, feminist activists and everything like that, um, and then them just questioning why I spoke a certain way, why I thought it was okay to be, uh, to speak very disrespectfully and casually about women and I just said, oh, it's just, look, you know, I'm a product of my environment, you know, it's just the slang that we use, blah, blah, had a very defensive sort of response to that. Um, but, and I think also with using a word like fag or whatever, you know, and when people first called me out about that, I was very defensive. But then people would always say, but you've, but, but you are so sensitive and touchy about anything to do with race. Like, what if, why can't you see it from that point of view? That's just the same thing. And it's very hurtful and it's oppressive. It's a, you know, it's a microaggression. And then, you know, I went away in my own time and I kind of started to think about it and I was like, oh, well, actually, they're right. And, um, and I don't know, uh, that, that was just sort of how I came to it, was just by, by thinking about it. But it's a, it's a painful and ongoing experience and that's what I mean is we're, we're constantly finding out about these things. And, and I'm sure that when... You know, I have kids many years in the future, they'll think that uh, the way I speak is so uh, archaic and there's a new type of language to describe what's going on in, in progressive politics. But um, yeah, it was people calling me out. I, I kind of don't like that word though, that, that, that phrase, to be called out. Um, but yeah, that's how it happened. Was that challenged? Yeah, challenged. Hey there. Uh, well, because I also, no, th there is a reason for that too. Well, I, I like tall women, I guess, but uh, no, no, because um, ever since I've started writing, I like to own and claim those contradictions within myself because, uh, like for instance, one of my first poems that I ever wrote was called Air Force Ones and it was about, you know, wearing the, the, the Nike shoes, Air Force Ones, and how I started to think about it and actually my grandma in Borneo had been tapping rubber from a tree uh, for years and years and that the rubber that was used in the shoes was probably something that she had tapped from a tree and so I was complicit in the sort of um, exploitation uh, of someone in my own family and part of this kind of structure and I think, uh, and, and I continue to be and we all are and so I sort of sometimes still float around between that type of language, the, the stuff that I may have used when I was a young man um, and still, still probably do, still all the time, you know, fall into. And then some of the, the new epiphanies that I've had as well, um, because that's part of being a complex and very flawed, very, very, very flawed uh, man. And I want to represent that in, in all its ugliness as well. So, and maybe I was just bragging too. Maybe I was just being an arrogant rapper, but that's part of me as well. So I want to put it all out there.
Yeah, I mean, look, I don't want to fit into this society. You know, when they tell me to assimilate into Australia, what they're really telling me is, firstly, they don't consider me legitimate anyway and that I'm not a real Australian, even though I was born here. And secondly, just to shut my mouth, smile, sit down like a dog and let them pat me on the head. Why would I want to assimilate into this colonial project that's still ongoing and oppressing so many people out in Manus Island, Aboriginal kids dying in custody? Why would I want to assimilate to that? So, yeah, I don't want to fit in here. Um, and secondly, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not sure about being an outsider. It's a weird thing because I feel like I have always occupied a very liminal space, an in-between space. You know, I'm interested in that kind of hyphen generation more and more of us are part of that, who are, you know, Muslim hyphen Australian or, um, you know, Asian hyphen Australian. That hyphen is what I'm interested in, that kind of in-between space. And I've kind of grown up between a very secular Australia and a very religious upbringing, Asian and, and my mum's Irish Australian. But, you know, Queen Bianne is uh, the, the motto of our town is city living, country benefits. So I'm even between <laughs> the city and the rural, you know. Um, but also... Uh, like, but then I have to be aware of class too. I've had a very privileged life, you know. My mother was a, a, a theatre director and a theatre reviewer. I went to a, pri I grew up in a very, you know, in the flats, like I'm, I'm around a whole lot of madness, but I went to a private school in Canberra. So, you know, I've had access to, to that life as well. Um, but I do think that when you grow up in between these worlds, it does give you a certain sensitivity um, or, an, or an, uh, you can act as a conduit. Um, between these worlds and, and you can see the world with a different type of eyes and, and sometimes maybe that's what I was trying to get at before when I was sort of just fumbling around was looking at, at the world with, with soft eyes that can take things in in their minutiae but also in a broad sense sort of simultaneously almost like in The Wire have you ever watched The Wire and, and Bunk is like saying you've got to look at a crime scene with, with soft eyes so you can sort of take it all in I think that growing up as an in-betweener and in a a liminal space has granted me that. And many people. Oh. How do I maintain my sanity? I'm not sure I do. I'll, I'll be serious though for a while, like uh, for, for a second, like I, you know, mental health issues amongst writers and, and musicians and everything, like it's a, it's a serious thing. Like I, re I read something recently that said, like the life expectancy of your average musician is something like 55 or 60. You know, it's, it's madness. I'd never thought about it like that. And that's because of, you know, drug addiction and alcohol and mental health problems. So, no, I mean, seriously, I've, I've sought professional help this year. Uh, I think in Australia we're very privileged and lucky to be able to, to do that. Um, you know, I, I've got, you know, spoken to a therapist and called up Beyond Blue and everything. Um, because it's a serious problem amongst so many people that I know and there is a, there is a lot of pressure um, that you put on yourself, that kind of inner war that you wage when you're, when you're creating. It's strange because poetry is therapy in one way but it also destroys you too. It's like a beautiful destroyer of some sort. Um, but um, yeah, sort of being, being willing to actually go out there and, and seek help I think is, is pretty important. Uh, and now it's a brand new world with all the, you know, the online stuff that you have to face. If you're a guy called uh, Omar bin Musa and you have a voice and you speak up, there is a large segment of society that will, um, will hound you uh, for, for having that voice. Um, and that is a lot of emotional labour. 
and we see someone like Ellen Van Nieven, uh, you know, a great uh, Aboriginal writer, and her, her book is on the HSC syllabus, and she's copying all this crazy online trolling and abuse, and I know that that's having an effect on her personally. Um, so, yeah, I guess networks of care um, in the communities that you create, and, and I think as bad as online stuff can be, it can be good for that, uh, for, for creating networks of care, um, but also, yeah, seeking help. Oh, 10 minutes. <laughs> I might take uh, one more question, then I'll do another poem. Oh, so I'll just, maybe because you had one before, yeah. Which question, are you working on another album? Yeah, I am. Um, I'm working on a hip-hop album right now that will be out in December. Um, and then I've been working on this one for a while called The Captain, I think, and it's about a blind Malay transgender sea captain who, <laughs> I'm not joking. No, I, I want to create like a Malay Tiresias, you know, like the blind man who, see, who sees everything. And, uh, but, but, then, but then Tiresias in, in antiquity always had breasts and a penis, so it was like that liminal space again in between, in between genders. Um, and so I've been writing about this and about the history of Southeast Asia. So the captain and a young Malaysian-Australian woman embark on a journey from Darwin into the archipelago and each place that they land is a different moment in history or time in Southeast Asia. So it's, gender bending and time traveling and will probably drive me completely insane to, to finish. But yeah, I'm going to get into that in earnest in, in January. I, you know, I felt like Here Come the Dogs was me really dealing with Australia and what I see as a combustible society here. And now I want to turn to where my ancestors come from and a place, oh, I spend a lot of time in Southeast Asia. So try and get my head around what, what I think of, of that region. Um, oh, maybe I'll take one more, and then I'll do the poem. Yeah, thanks. I was going to ask, you're a successful hip-hop artist in three regular schools. No. Yeah. Oh, how about that? There we go. Yeah. So my question is, is related to, is there, do you feel any expectation to, to maintain the same, which is Omar I don't know. I feel like I want to, I want to break that, break that down. Like it's a process of breaking all that persona that you build up on stage. Uh, that's why I want to be um, really, really honest and raw in everything that I create. And that's why I'm trying to create everything really fast. Um, so that I'm, I'm putting my, my life and my rises and falls just directly in front of you so that the audience can, can get something out of that. And um, yeah, I think it's, it, it's weird because in, in hip hop there's always been a, a collapsing of the person and the persona um, in this weird way. Like, a, you know, there's, there's not a separation. So um, the, the hip-hop artists aren't granted, um, they're not allowed to sort of just go off on these crazy tangents because people will say, well, you must be speaking from your own personal belief, whereas, you know, a fiction writer isn't exactly held to the same standard when they create a character who says or does really bad things. Um, but, yeah, I, I feel like the... The weaker I become as a, as a man and the more I break myself down, the stronger the art becomes somehow. So again, it's, you know, it's the tortured artist thing. Um, I don't know what to think about that. But um, I'm going to do one more poem, and it's about my hometown, Queen Bianne. Uh, I grew up, as I said, in the flats on the top story with my mum and a couple of uh, tabby cats and my dad as well. Was, yeah, he was there. And... Um, you know, I'd kind of look out over the paddock and, and my friends would call me down there. We'd like smoke ciggies and hang out and, and we'd hang out on the steps of the flats and tell yarns. And, and in one way, I think that was where I 
kind of got my love of storytelling, was sitting on the steps of the flats and just talking for hours, and you realise you didn't need any money to do that, you know? Um, it didn't cost anything to have an imagination uh, or to use your voice. And so when I was hanging out on the steps of the flats, you know, I met a lot of scallywags and troublemakers and reprobates and uh, rapscallions, you know? I knew none of their government names back then. Back then, some of the most wondrous people I knew were self-destructive. Talented vandals who took to relationships with mallet and saw. But there was beauty in the streets. You could see it everywhere. In fishtails and donuts, the silver cursive that slanted off tires. In spray can fumes and opals of oil. In kickflips and crossovers, cuts and kebab shops. In sneakers that cluster hung like grapes on power lines. Hood chandeliers. And in that, in that something. Could they see it too? The generation who printed a crystal font on its bloodstream, the entrepreneur with check pistol and silencer as thick as a ballerina's wrist. You see, this was the Australia I saw. No Don Bradmans, no Pavlovas, no coastline etched in shale, no white sails of the opera house. No, these were suburbs inscribed on scarified earth, an alphabet of exiles far from lands of birth. I'm talking, talking pittance workers and remittance senders, traditional custodians and the kids of immigrants, you know the ones, the ones heard about but not from, the ones talked at, not to, the ones treated as if very, very small. In other words, us. Each day, like smoke, I unwound up the stairs of the flats. I smelled the oils and spices of many lands. I heard many tongues. In flat seven, a Macedonian man said, Hey, shop resh, brother, as he massaged his elbow. The Tongan woman in flat 16 said, Maloy lele, as she prepared for her third night shift in a row. And my mother and father said, Assalamu alaikum, when I entered flat 26. I learned that in Malay culture, a storyteller is named Panglipur Lara a dispeller of worries, a reliever of sorrows. This is also the name given to a garden of delights where all cares are lost. And what delights in stories, what insights, what power to give voice to the world's inside. You and I know there are many, many types of stories. I heard carnivorous tales lope down gentrifying streets, the hiss of talkback serpents, the whistle of go back to where you came from. I lost faith and leapt into the whirlpool. They were scribbled hours, pilled and powdered, full of sex and camaraderie. Part of me knew on days like this, the timer ticked, history slipped. We skipped words like stones from our hands, words that could never be retrieved, like love, like hate. Like us, like goodbye. But somehow, somehow I found that something, like a magic key connecting ancient and new. I found it on beats, breaks, tapes, and acetate, unordained lion hearts on throne self made. Do you hear? Do you hear what I'm talking about? Do you hear what I'm talking about? Come on, give me some noise, man. Yeah, that's all right. Hey, I'm talking about Tupac's and Lauren Hills, Rakim's, Nas's, Kendrick Lamar's, Public Enemy, Siphoning El Haji, Malik El Shabazz, Jim Blas, Deltas and Brad Strutz, Deaf Wish Casts and Coolisms, Hilltop Hoods and Horror Shows. Do you hear? Do you hear what I'm talking about? 
Yeah. I'm talking about the numberless underground kings and queens who taught us the power of our voices, of non-conformity, that each lyric, each windmill, each scarred 45 or fan of paint from a nozzle was a story aching to be told, unfolding before us the fractals of cosmos and starlight, a world all of a sudden unbearably bright. So linger now. Linger with me. Consider that somehow, despite the broken bottles and tattered bigotry, we could still own that something. Be that something. Something airborne. Something gold shot. Beings arranged in a calligraphy of rhythm and rebellion. People with so much damn resilience. It's impossible not to smile. So let it play. That something. Let it play. Weave your stories into shining nets. Drag them behind zigzag and decks. Zooped up cars, trains and trams through streets and sunsets. Trawl for the things you thought you'd lost. Because you, me, us, we are more than statistics. We are more than misfits. We are more than your dreams are unrealistic. This is the paint that drips from every brick. The spirit that soothes the weary limb. This is the new scripture of our lives, spelled skyscraper high in capital letters. Bold. Thank you for having me, guys. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.